What is up, Anthem Church? How's everybody doing this morning? I'm sorry. How's everybody doing this morning? The less responsive y'all are, the longer we go. As a matter of fact, I'm going to come over here for just a sec, Kristen. I don't want you to feel bad at all because I had sort of this running thing. Here's, here's what you should know. See, so John shared with y'all that when he started, he got the motivating word before he stepped up here of don't suck. Okay? So this morning, I got don't suck and finish on time. That's all I get. <laughs> so here's the way that we, this, this, me and you, just nobody else here. If Rick doesn't give me the glare at least every 10 minutes, we're not doing something right. So you're completely good. Anytime you do announcements, you got to get his blood pressure. Matter of fact, let's go ahead and move to this side. So y'all might not know this. Uh, Becky, and I, there's a lot of new faces. I'm Perry. Glad to see you. I talk fast. You're going to have to listen fast. You're going to stay with me. We're here. My wife, Becky, and I are the children's directors around here. So what y'all really need to know, I've probably said this. Some of you heard it. If you not heard it, here, you're here. All right? I love y'all. But it's because I have to love y'all. Let's just be honest, okay? The Bible says you got to love everybody. So sometimes, some of you are more lovable than others. I realize I'm not lovable at all. So I'm not throwing stones from my glass house. But the kids love the kids. My favorite part of every Sunday is to be in there and they're singing and they're jumping and they're dancing. And, they're, and at the end, we all huddle up and they stink because they're sort of sweaty and smell like Pop-Tarts and Cheerios and Inevitably, somebody breaks wind while we're in there, but we're all in, and we're close, and we pray. That's my favorite part of it. So, I don't know if y'all heard this or not. Y'all had to hear it, because I heard it. I was in the back gleaming. Rick's blood pressure was going up, but I was gleaming with pride like a parent. I could hear him singing. We believe you. It was awesome. So, if you don't upset Rick every once in a while, at least every 10 minutes, you're not doing something right. So, we're good. All right, so today, we are finishing up a series called ships all right so now i'm gonna I'm have to be everybody we're tracking everybody's looking we're still in a food coma from thanksgiving some of y'all are asleep okay this is gonna get out of hand real quick i can tell okay food coma everybody knows what food coma okay you skinny people i just don't like y'all at all because here's how it rolls when you go to your fourth place to eat thanksgiving all right i'll just have half a piece of lettuce and a little water and everybody there, bless her heart. That's what they say. When you're this size, I don't care if you've eaten 14 meals. If you don't load it up, your grandma's like, baby, what's wrong? No, my stuff don't take. And then she's mad at you, all right? So some of us are in a food coma. Some of us are getting over some stuff. We're all here. We're good. Last week of a series called Ships, all right? So i got to be honest with you. When Rick first started this for about the first three minutes of his introduction for the first sermon, I thought, oh, right. I've been waiting for God to approve and confirm that I needed a boat in my life. <laughs> nothing fancy, 20-foot war eagle, about a 150 Yemi haul on the back, you know, nothing. That, but that's not what we're talking about. So we've been going through a survey of the scriptures where we're looking at different ships to where we're seeing the elemental, elemental things that are necessary in the life of a Christ follower to live love field. Faith-filled, hope-filled followers of Jesus Christ. All right? That's what we've been doing. We've just been taking a survey through the Scriptures, through all of this. Now, I'm going to go ahead and start, and I'm going to say this. We've looked at six areas. Today, we're going to look at the last. We're going to look at worship today. But these six areas that we've looked at, the first is stewardship. Okay? I've said a lot of things. I've been joking, cutting up a little bit. I say this beyond a shadow of a doubt. I've been a believer for 31 years. Roughly 20 of those years have been in ministry of some form, fashion, or the other. 
The best message I've ever heard in my life on stewardship is the beginning of this series. If you weren't here and you missed it, you need to go listen to that message. If you were here and you didn't miss it, you need to go back and listen to that message. If you've already listened to that message, you need to go back. You need to listen to that message. Best message I've ever heard in my life on stewardship. And here's why I believe that's so true. Because beyond a shadow of a doubt, the biggest vice that God can use to distract us as believers is our money. We're going to talk about this a little bit more in just a minute. But our money. Go back and listen to that. So we've talked about stewardship. We've talked about discipleship. We've talked about leadership. We've talked about partnership. Now, Brent had this awesome word for, like, community and partnership all put together. I'm not even going to try it because I'll butcher it. We talked about fellowship. Last week, we talked about hardship. And today, we're going to talk about worship. Ships are designed to carry someone or something from point A to point B. All right? A ship is designed, whether it's a person, a cargo, whether it's for business, whether it's for recreation, to take someone and something and take it from point A to point B. But in order to do that, three things must happen. Remember what those three things are? Remember what the three? Number one, there must be displacement. There has to be some sort of displacement of the water that the boat sits in in order for the boat to stay afloat and for it to be able to move in the water. Displacement. For many of us, hopefully through this series and hopefully through today, we've been challenged that there, there are some things in our life that need to be displaced, that need to be moved, that need to be shuffled, that need to be slid aside in order that we can be the ships, the instruments that God has intended to use in our life, through our life. So we've got to have displacement. Not only do we have to have displacement, it's never good when you forget the second one, you have to have navigation. Excuse me, that's the third one, you have to have propulsion. This is why this never works to give me a list. You have to have propulsion. Not only does there have to be water that's displaced, there has to be some power that moves us from point A to point B. We know as believers, as children of God, that the thing that propels us is the grace of God. It's the grace of God that's poured out on the cross. It's the grace of God that begins when we become a child of God, when we cross from death into life. It's the grace of God as his children that gets us up and moves us from point A to point B so that he can use us continually day in and day out. The third thing is navigation. Not only do we have to be able to displace water, not only do we have to have some sort of power that gets us through that place, but we've got to know where we're going. We've got to have something that keeps us on track to get us there. Navigation. In the life of a believer, it's the Holy Spirit of God that keeps us on course. It's the Holy Spirit of God that keeps us on track. It's the Holy Spirit of God that gets us from point A to point B. So today, as we talk about the idea of worship, I want you to turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6. Turn in your Bible. Turn on your Bible. Do something with your Bible. Turn to Isaiah chapter 6. Now, as you do that, I want you to know that as ships... There's basically two jobs that we have, all right? So as you're turning, there's two jobs that you have as a ship as we begin to look at this idea of worship. The first one is this. We have the job of bringing people who are far from God near to him, all right? The second is to build up the church. Basically, when we look at the idea that we are the ships in which God uses to accomplish something, we have two jobs. Now, there's a lot of Letter A's, B's, C's, and D's under that. But basically two primary jobs is to see that people who are far from God be brought near. And number two, that the church, the body, be built up. Those are our primary jobs. And as we look at this idea of worship, we're going to look at how we do that. But here's the fine print. Make sure you hear this. Here's the fine print. Worship, and I go ahead and apologize to you. 
because most of the time, people that stand up here and look at you and for 30, 45 minutes yell at you about something, we've sort of got this a little backwards, okay? Most of the time, we've led you to believe that worship is simply the songs that we sing. Or maybe if it's not the songs that we sing, it's the style of songs that we sing. Maybe if it's not the style of songs that we sing, it's the time that we gather together to sing. So here's the fine print. Worship has very little to do with anything involving singing. Very little. Worship is the lives that we live. Worship is the life that we live in response to God's initiative in our life. All right? Here is the NPCT definition of worship. Y'all don't know what NPC? New Perry Cotton translation. <laughs> definition of worship. The lives that we live that reflect back the worth of God for His presence in our life. It's the lives that we live to reflect back to Him the worth that alone belongs to God for His presence in our life. Now be very sure you didn't just misunderstand me. I didn't say that God's worth is earned or it's gained or anything because we work. No, 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 no. Because God is who he says he is, and because God has done what he has done, and because God has went to such great lengths to have a relationship with us through his son Jesus Christ, and because he continually, daily, moment by moment interacts with us, because of that, because he alone is God, then our life that we live just simply reflects back the worth of God for his presence in our life. It has nothing to do with songs that we sing. It has to do with the lives that we live. We Make God's presence known in our lives by the way that we worship Him loudly. And that has nothing to do with a word that we say or with a word that we sing. Romans 12.1 says this. Romans 12.1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. So Paul's talking to the church. Paul's talking to believers. Paul's talking to people that have crossed from death into life and by the power of Jesus Christ, Know God intimately as his child. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Paul didn't say anything about a song that we would sing. Paul simply said that the lives we live, that we give back to God as the initiative of his presence in our life, is how we would worship. So how do we worship? I jotted down a few things. Just so that as we begin this, we'll understand what we're really talking about. Number one, we worship when we give. Y'all hear that awkward silence? This is great. Here's why this is great. I make nothing from this church. I'm not on salary. I don't even think I get reimbursed sometimes for stuff that I buy, I'm pretty sure. Your giving does not affect me at all. Okay. So I want to go ahead and clear the air. Some of you are new, hadn't seen you before, new faces. I'm going to stand on this side because Rick and Phil both are going to kill me at what I'm about to say. If you're not a covenant member of Anthem, we don't want your money. We don't want you to give a dime. We want to give you something. So I don't want you to leave here and say, Perry's about your money. Anthem Church is about your money. About your... Nope, 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 nope. But if Anthem Church is your home, the way that you give is a direct response to what God has given in your life. And it's one of the key ways that we worship. It's one of the key ways that we worship God when we take something of value to us and give it away. Many, 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 many years ago, 
without telling how exactly how old I am, but many, 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 many years ago, I read a book by J.I. Packer called Knowing God. In that book, he mentions that your giving is a barometer to your spiritual maturity. Now, the first time that I read that, I got mad. You know why I got mad? Because I wasn't giving. <laughs> but as only the Holy Spirit can do. Now, for most of y'all, he does like this. Y'all hear that? This is what he has to do for Perry. Hey, dummy. But as only the Holy Spirit can do, he began to convict me. You know what? He's right. The reason that just made me mad is because I'm not giving. And it's true that as I look in my life, the areas that I struggle the most with stupid sins, if I unpack it, it's also a season that I'm giving the least. Now, so that we don't go too deep into this, what's biblical giving? It's very simple. It's not about a number. If you have to have a starting place, because money is a numbers game, if you have to have a starting place, the Bible throughout the Old Testament talks about a tithe, which is not always something that translates into the New Testament, but basically it's a starting point. If you're not giving, you say, I have no idea where to start giving, give about 10% of what you make. Very easy. And as you move and grow from the Old Testament to the New Testament, the New Testament has a way of introducing to something to us called sacrificial giving. Sacrificial giving is just simply this. I'm already giving a base. And when God shows a need, I stand up and very quietly and happily give more to that need. Sacrificial giving. Giving is the primary way in which we worship. Number two, we also worship by the way in which we share what God has done in our life through, the son, through His Son, Jesus Christ. All right? Worship number one has to do with our giving. Worship number two is when we share what God's done in our life through Jesus Christ. Let me give you all a little hint. I'm coming to this side because I don't want to get bogged down with this. When Hector sits in a doctor's office and a doctor's talking about a surgery to remove a cancer and he says, oh, by the way, Jesus is bigger than this cancer or you, that's worship. It has nothing to do with sitting in a church building and singing a song. It has everything to do with the overflow. God has done this, and because God has done this, I can't help but tell you what he's done and what he's started and what he's promised he'll finish in my life. Now, I don't say that because Hector wanted us to say that. Matter of fact, Hector's probably giving me the Rick look right now. But I say that because that is a living, breathing example as we look at the idea of worship. And it's way more than simply a song that we can sing on a Sunday morning. It's the idea not only of how we give, but of how we tell other people. I can't explain it. I can't put it in a neat little package. God intervened in my life. And because he intervened in my life, this is who I am now. And he wants to intervene in your life the same way. That's worship. Number three, corporate worship. This is where it gets a little messy, and this is where it gets a little confusing. Here's corporate worship. Let me explain this to you. Corporate worship started this morning a little bit before 8 o'clock. Somebody unlocked the door. And they unlocked the door, and they turned the light on. And somewhere a little bit before 9 o'clock, somebody came in and got this great big coffee maker and started filling it up with coffee. That's corporate worship. And somewhere, probably still out there right now, there's a guy standing in the rain attending to our parking lot. He waved at you when he came in. He told the little kids, oh, stop running. He said, there's a space in the back. There's corporate worship. This is corporate worship. Not just me standing here yelling at you for 30 minutes. We singing. We receiving offering. We shaking. This is corporate worship. Right now, we are somewhere around the changing of diaper 233 this morning. Out of 472, we had the most regular children in Harnett County. 
corporate worship. Do you know how distracting it would be if every time one of our kids had to go to the bathroom, they crawled over you, walked out the back, slammed the door. Mama, oh, do you know how distracting that is? It's corporate worship. It's part of corporate work. At the end of this, there might be a guy or a gal who says, you know what? God said something to me, not Perry. The word of God said something. I need to pray with somebody. And they find a lady to pray with or they find a guy to pray with. That's corporate worship. Somewhere at the end of this, hopefully. Now look around. If you see somebody you don't know, I'm placing the yoke of burden upon you right now. Hopefully when this is over, somebody's going to say, hey, it's raining, but let's go across the road and get some barbecue. I don't know you. Never seen you before. Your first time in Anthem. I'll pay. Yeah, I just said that. <laughs> I'll pay. That's corporate worship. Worship is not isolated to simply a little song that we sing. Worship is the lives that we live. And as we live lives, there is going to be times when we come together and we live it publicly, jointly, in something called corporate worship. It's not about the song that we sing. It's about who we are and how we interact together. Our homes. Number four, our homes are an instrument of worship. Our homes. Now here's what some of y'all just did. You don't know my home. Oh, but I do. Your home is an element of worship if you're single. Your home is an element of worship if you're newly married. Your home is an element of worship if you're like the Caspers and have 43 kids and 17 more on the way. <laughs> Your home is an element of worship if you're an empty nester. Your home is an element of worship if you're a grandparent. Your home is a play. Here's why. Very simply because of this. Because God can use that simple thing and elevate it and magnify it in order to reach out to people that are in the same place that you're at. There are other newlyweds that need to hear about what Jesus is doing in your life. There are other single people that need to hear about what Jesus is doing in your life. There are other empty nesters which need to hear about what Jesus is doing in your life. There are other grandparents. Whatever the case may be, our home. But here's the other reason. Because our home is also the place where people know us the best. This gets a little painful. But our home is where people know us the best. Here, here's something that I say. I, I have two beautiful children, one very well behaved, and one acts like her mama a lot. But <laughs> <laughs> our, our oldest daughter, I have to continually tell, tell this to, you're a better daughter than I am a daddy. You know why? Because she sees me. Bumps, bruises, big mouth and all. She sees me. Our home is that place where the Holy Spirit and God in his infinite sense of humor says, oh, let me push down on this for just a second because you're an idiot, Perry. <laughs> our home is that place. Our home is that. Our lives, finally, every aspect of our life that I've omitted in the first four is an element and an object of worship. It's a means in which we can reflect back to God, here's your worth for your involvement in my life. Because you took the initiative and because you went to such great lengths to know me that it cost your son death on the cross and burial in a borrowed tomb to be raised again on the third day, because of that, the life that I live reflects just simply, you're worth everything. That's our worship. Now, there are three elements in Isaiah that we see that deal with how we genuinely worship day in and day out with the lives that we live. Three elements, all right? Isaiah chapter 6. These are very simple. 
but they're not easy. Don't confuse simple and easy. These are very simple, but they must, but they are not easy. But they must be there. Let me make sure I give you this fine print before we start. They must be there. It's a continual cycle of growth in the life of a love-filled, faith-filled, hope-filled follower of Jesus Christ. This simply is spiritual wash, rinse, repeat. Wash, rinse, repeat. Wash, rinse, repeat. Number one is our brokenness. Brokenness. Now let me just go ahead and say this to start with. Usually when we say the word brokenness, there's a negative connotation that comes to it. If something's broke, it means it's not right. If something's broken, it needs to be, means it needs to be fixed. In this case, that's not true. Brokenness that we're about to talk about, the idea of worship, is a positive thing because it means this. God's not done with us. It means that there's something there that doesn't reflect the image of his son in the life of his children. And because he's not done with us, he's continually taking us to this place of brokenness. And it just simply means that God is still at work and he's still trying to accomplish something in your life and in mine. If you're not dead, God's not done. Don't forget that. If you're still here standing, breathing, able to think, able to talk, if you're not dead, God's not done. And this idea of brokenness is not a negative thing. It's a positive thing because it means that the hand of God is actively involved and he's doing something in your life. Look at verse 5 of Isaiah 6. Verse 5 says this. And I said, this is Isaiah speaking, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You know what Isaiah is saying here? After much study of the Hebrew original language, you know what Isaiah is saying here? Y'all might want to lean in and write this down. Isaiah is saying, I am jacked up. I am messed up, tore up, broke up. I am jacked. And not just am I jacked up. I'm leading the way amongst a group of people, and we're all jacked up. Now, some of y'all didn't just catch that. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to turn to the person beside of you. In Jesus' name, tell them, you jacked up. Oh, some of y'all enjoyed that a little bit too much. Turn to the person on your other side that you obviously like better and tell them. You jacked up too. Here's the thing. We are all jacked up people. Here's the problem though. The church has become this place that we act like it's not okay to be jacked up. There is no better place to be jacked up than the church. But here's the catch. It's okay to be jacked up. It's okay to be messed up. But it's not okay to stay that way. That's one of the main reasons that God gave us each other. We are messy, messed up people. But by some means, through the Holy Spirit of God and His infinite wisdom, He's made us a body. And as a body, He takes messed up people and He works out all these wrinkles and kinks when other people come along beside you and say, I love you, but what are you thinking? One of the most influential men in my life now going to be with Jesus. Great, big, old, burly... If I say great big old Burley, he was a man. <laughs> great big old Burley had his long goatee, hardly ever talked. But when he would say something, he'd always <clears throat> clear his throat. Every time he did that, I was like, oh, Cecil's about to say something's going to mess me up. I've done something stupid. He'd come to you. In brokenness, great big old stovepipe arm, he put it around. He'd say, Perry. Oh, he'd say, <clears throat> Perry, 
I love you, but what are you thinking? <laughs> Perry, I love you, but did you hear what you just said? Perry, I love you. In brokenness. And that's the way that God does this. He takes a bunch of jacked up, messed up people. Now, if you would have asked him, he would have said, no, I'm more messed up than anybody else around here. But God takes us, a bunch of messed up people, in some way by the transforming work of God and the intervention of Christ in our life, he takes us from the trash of this world and makes us the treasure of his eye through his son, Jesus Christ. Isaiah, chapter 6, verse 5, Isaiah has said, I am messed up. Not only am I messed up, I'm leading the way amongst a bunch of people that are messed up. Why would Isaiah say that? Quickly, verses 1 through 4. In the year of King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. All right, I'm going to stop for just a second. We can debate a lot of this stuff. I'm going to scratch the surface of some of this. Isaiah was a prophet of God, and most likely Isaiah is getting a vision from God. I'm not saying that's how God works now. I'm not saying that's not how God can work now. I'm just saying that when Isaiah was coming along, there was no scripture. There was no Genesis to Revelation. There was no Holy Spirit at that point in time that had been left by Jesus when he went back to earth. So God used men to stand up in the gap between holy God, simple man, and say, Thus saith the Lord. Isaiah is one of those men. And Isaiah 6 says that Isaiah is standing in a place that he sees God. Now, John chapter 12, verse 41 actually tells us that what Isaiah is seeing is Jesus Christ himself. Isaiah is seeing the person of Jesus. I don't understand how all this works. I can't unpack it. I can't put it in a neat little package. And I can't say, ta-da, here's how it is. I simply know this by the evidence of what we see in just a second. Isaiah is standing face-to-face, toe-to-toe in the presence of God, most likely the presence of his son, Jesus Christ, in a vision as a prophet and a man of God that's preparing to speak to God's people. Above him, meaning God, stood the seraphim. Each of them had six wings. With two of the wings, they covered their face. With two of them, they covered his feet. With two of them, they flew. Verse 3 says, And I called to another and said, Here's what the seraphim, the angels, here's what they were doing as they stood around God. They cried out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Verse 4, it says, Because of the speaking of God, the thresholds shook. And the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke. Here's the deal. You can't stand face to face with God. You can't have an interaction with God. You can't come to the crossroads in life where you stand toe to toe with God and what he desires to do in your life and leave the same as you were. And Isaiah has got a glimpse into who God is. And because of that glimpse, Isaiah is experiencing a brokenness. Because of seeing who God is, he is beginning to realize how messed up I am. Some of y'all don't know this. I'm actually sharing something very deep and emotionally connected to myself right now. I own a vintage. And when I say vintage, I mean vintage. 1989 Toyota truck. Bought that truck in 1991 when I was 15 years old. It is my pride and joy. It currently has 438,000 miles on it. Now, along with the 438,000 miles that it currently has on it, it has developed over time a few quirks, we'll say. You got to sort of exactly know what you're doing to crank it. 
It's like my anti-theft device that I didn't have to install. It just Most people can't crank it. You have to sort of know what you're doing when you drive it because it dog legs a little bit. Y'all don't know what dog legs mean? Oh, I'm about to give y'all some southern culture. Okay. Go home, and the next time your dog is, like, chasing after something, in the, in the, I don't know why I'm doing this, but when your dog's chasing after something, and they get to running so fast, like, their back legs try to pass their front, they're dog-legging, okay? Well, my truck, for some reason, the rear end tries to pass the front end, so we just sort of go down the road like this. You have to overcompensate a little bit, just steer it the other way. It's good. Eats tires off a little bit. It's okay. It's got a few little quirks, you know. Um, every once in a while, my daughter jumps out of the front of the truck because you'd be riding along and the radio's and just goes. And I thought I had the combination figured out that if you would tap the dash three times at the top and the side, it would come on, but that stopped working the other day, so I don't know exactly what's, I don't know what's wrong with it. Most of the five gears work most of the time. Seat's a little wore out. Like when you get in, there's this thing pokes you. You get used to it. You sort of but here's what you need to know. I love that truck. Love it. Never get rid of it. If it just dies, I'm just going to park it in the front of the yard. Just every day when I come in, I'm going to like rub it for good luck and rub it when I go to work. I love this truck. But periodically, I'll drive one of y'all's trucks. And even though I don't want to admit it, and I'm admitting it publicly, it makes me begin to say, hmm, hmm. So let's just say Brent and I are here working on something which happens sometimes, and I forget to bring something that we need to work, which happens sometimes, and he's parked behind me, and he just says, here, take my truck, run to Ace Hardware. Okay, no problem, I'll run it. And on the way up there, I'm thinking, wow, this seat fits nice. <laughs> Nothing's poking me. You can not only listen to the radio, you can change the station. <laughs> you can control the volume. These little buttons for, like, red and blue still have air that come in and out when you turn them. It's amazing. You don't have to, like, counter steer. So the first few miles, I'm in the ditch, but then I figure out, oh, you just hold it. in the It's amazing. And the only reason I ever begin to realize and think, man, my truck falling apart, is because I get in somebody else's truck and I realize this is what it should be like. This is what it used to be like. If I wasn't so cheap, I would refurbish my truck, and that's what it would be like again, but I'm not going to do that. Here's the thing. Same thing just happened to Isaiah. He realizes how messed up and broken and jacked up he is. And we are because he got just a glimpse in a vision. He got just a glimpse of who God was and who God is and who God promises to be for all eternity. And not only that, he got a glimpse of how God wants to interact in his life and how God has promised that what I start, I'll finish. He got just a glimpse. And that glimpse was enough to let him know, I am messed up. Woe is me. I'm a broken person. And I live in the midst of other broken, messed up people. See, here's what I know. There's only two places that we can find ourselves today. Only two places. All right? Here's what they are. 1 Peter 4 tells us this. If you're a child of God, if there's been a time in your life that the gospel has intersected your life and you've crossed from death into life, you're a follower of Jesus. You're going to fight sin from this day until the day you die. 1 Peter 4 tells us that. The only time we're going to be sinless is when we breathe our last and we step into eternity with God. So the hope that we have as children of God, this first position, is found in 1 John 1.9. Here's how we continually fight sin. 
If we confess our sins, not just we say we've done it. Confession is way more than, yeah, I sinned, and then turn around and go right back to it. Confession is when we come to the place that we realize this is wrong. This should not even be named among somebody who claims to be a child of God, yet I'm loving it and I'm returning to it. As the scripture would say, like a dog that returns to its vomit. When we confess our sin and we agree with God that it is what it actually is sin, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us. From all unrighteousness. If we confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See this is the, genu- the second genuine position. Or the second genuine element of worship. Not only do we experience brokenness. But we experience repentance. We experience repentance. Verse 6 and 7 of Isaiah says this. Then. By the way let me just say repentance. That's a military term. Sometimes we use terms in church. And we just nod like everybody knows what they mean. Repentance. It's a military term. It's the idea that we're heading in one direction and we would do an about face and we would turn around and we would go the other direction. Spiritually speaking, repentance is not simply that we turn and randomly, haphazardly go after nothingness. No, repentance is when we turn from the things contradictory to the person of God that should be in our life and we turn to the person of God in the event to seek after the things that should be in our life. Repentance. Verses 6 and 7 of Isaiah says, Then one of the seraphim, he flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Why would the angel, seraphim, why would it take a coal and touch Isaiah's lips? I don't know. Maybe the problem with Isaiah was much like some of us, meaning some of me. Maybe his mouth was his biggest problem. Maybe it has more to do with, as the scripture speaks, that the mouth is simply a, a mirror or a window into your heart, and that out of the mouth the heart speaks. Maybe it's a picture here that as Isaiah stood face-to-face and toe-to-toe with God, that the angel would take a coal, something that represents pain and something that would represent brokenness and something that would represent the searing of things that shouldn't be there and touches his lips because it's the evidence of Isaiah. Your woe is me, but you don't have to stay woe is me. You see, that's the thing about repentance. Here's what I know from roughly 30 years of being a Christian and roughly 20 years of some sort of ministry. Most of us are going to say one of two things when we start talking about the grace of God. Either, yeah, that makes sense. I don't understand why God would want to have a relationship with me. Or, you don't understand, Perry. You don't know what's in my past. You don't know what, I've, you don't know what I thought this morning. God wouldn't want to have anything to do with me. See, here's the, thing. here's the deal. The grace of God is bigger than anything we can bring to the table. It's bigger than any sin, it's bigger than any messed up, it's bigger than any jacked up. And when we come to the place of brokenness and repentance, then God restores us. Those two positions that we talked about, I only gave you the first one. The first one is a child of God, we continually fight sin. And the way that we fight it is continually confessing that sin. The second position that we can find ourselves in is a person that has continually rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's what that simply means. God, in his infinite wisdom, grace, and mercy, decided that because of the sin of man, he had to pay the sin debt. And in order to do that, his son Jesus stood up 
from the right hand of the Father and removed those attributes of deity that made him God. And he ran to this earth to live a perfect life for 33 years, to die on a cross beside two common thieves, to be buried in a tomb that was borrowed from someone else, to be raised again on the third day so that you and I, the people, the sinfulness of this world who deserve to be nailed to a cross because of the things that we've done, can know and experience life. See, that's the second place that we can find ourselves. We find ourselves when we start to look at this place of repentance that we just simply need to submit to the calling of God in our life and turn to Him through His Son, Jesus Christ. The Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Not one of us are good enough to earn the merit of God. It goes on to say that the wages of sin is death. The thing that we earn because of our sin is death, eternal separation from God. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Why? Well, the Bible continues to say that God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Basically, Perry's translation, while we brought absolutely nothing of worth to the table, God sought us to the place that he loved us so much that he would die so that we could have life. Romans 10, 9 and 13 says, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Repentance is the means of propulsion that connect us to the grace of God as the power source of our lives. It keeps us moving forward. So basically, as we look at this idea of displacement, for some of us, we just need to, in brokenness, figure out there's some sins in our life that need to be displaced. But more than that, we need to figure out the proportion of our life is when the Holy Spirit of God is speaking to us and leading us and calling us and correcting us and condemning us and all of that, or correcting us, all of those things. That is the proportion that moves us from point A to point B. So genuine worship has brokenness. Genuine worship has repentance. Finally, number three, genuine worship has obedience. In verses 8 through 9, Isaiah, after he encounters God, he says this, and I heard a voice of the Lord. Can I just stop real quick and say, don't miss that. Don't miss the significance for the second time in a couple of short verses that God has spoke. One of my favorite verses in all the scripture is found in the book of Ephesians because it continually says that while we are dead in our trespasses and deserving of an eternity in hell, God intervened says, but God intervened. My favorite words in Scripture. And because God has intervened, we can know and experience life to the fullest. We can cross over from death to life. We can go from being an enemy of God to being a child of God. But God intervened. It's continually the speaking of God in your life that gives us any hope. It's continually the speaking of God in our lives through His Holy Spirit, through men and women of God that love us enough to stand up and give us the Word of God, that give us the hope that God's not done with us and He's still at work in our life. Isaiah says in verse 8, And I heard the voice of the Lord again, saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And then I said, Here I am, send me. So God said, Then go. Isaiah was receiving a divine invitation, and so do we. Isaiah was receiving a divine inv invitation. You've stood toe-to-toe -to -toe with who I am. You've recognized your brokenness. 
you've understood the bit of repentance where we see the picture of the angel that would take a coal and touch his lips. And for us, we know that that repentance comes from the confession of our sin. You've seen all of this. Now our simple response to that is to be obedient to God. Here's what I know. I can't stand here and tell you what God's telling you to do. I can't stand here and tell you what God's telling you to pick up or lay down. I can't tell you what sin that right now the Holy Spirit of God, from, probably from the time we started talking, began to deal with in your life. Whether it's a sin of commission, something you're doing that you know you shouldn't do. Whether it's a sin of omission, something you know you should be doing but you're not doing. I can't tell you what that is, but I do know that it's the Holy Spirit of God that taps on our heart and calls us specifically and poignantly by name and says, what about this? What about this? If you're a child of God, the Holy Spirit is continually in the process of bringing us from brokenness, repentance, to obedience. Maybe if this is the point in time in your life, I don't care if you've been in church your whole life or this is the first time you ever stepped foot in a door of a church. Maybe if this is the point in time where you say, you know, I've heard this idea of Jesus and I've heard this idea of the cross and I've been a good person and I've said all the right things, but there's never been a point in place in time in your life when you were intersected by the truth of the gospel. That God died so that you can have life. Maybe today is the day that you respond to that and you quit running from that. You recognize that there's a brokenness because of your sin. You recognize that there needs to be repentance and you simply recognize that right now is the time to obey God and what he says. What about in the elements of our worship? What about in the elements of our worship? If we're supposed to be looking at displacing sin and we're looking at the propulsion, the power to get us from point A to point B, and we're looking at the Holy Spirit's navigating us, giving us direction. What about in those elements of worship that we talked about in the beginning? What about in our giving? What if now is a time that if you're a covenant member of Anthem Church that you stop hearing people stand up and talk about you should be giving and start giving? I know this, financially, money. Bible doesn't say that money is the root of all evil, it says that the love of money is the root of all evil. And I know from Perry's own stubborn, hard-headed life that money is one of the things that kept me from listening and following God to the fullest for so long. Maybe it's not in your giving. Maybe it's in your sharing. Maybe God continually provides you with opportunities like Hector to sitting in a doctor's office to say, you know what, this seems hopeless, but I know the person of all hope, and not only did he give me hope, he wants to give you hope. Let me give you a little secret. I had a professor say this years and years ago. Most people are afraid of sharing Jesus because they're afraid they won't know all the right answers. You know what? You don't know all the right answers. I don't know all the right answers. Let me give you one more little tidbit of hope. If you completely butcher it and mess up, you're not going to send somebody to a second hell. You can't mess it up. Open your mouth and the Holy Spirit of God has a way of taking things that you might not even know you're about to say and say. So maybe it is in our sharing. Maybe it's not that we don't know what to say. Maybe we just need to be willing to open our mouth and say when God says to say. Maybe it is in our corporate worship. Maybe the area that you need to displace or propel or navigate, maybe there's something with corporate worship. Maybe God's saying that you need to be serving somewhere. Maybe God's saying that you need to be a part of something Maybe God's saying you need to get here and unlock the door. You need to play the guitar. You need to change one of those 432 diapers that have been changed by this point. 
Maybe it is an element of corporate worship because God did make us a body. And as a body, here's what we know, that if the thumb's not working, it's hard for the hand to function the way it's supposed to. Maybe it's in our home. Maybe God's just simply saying, I want you to leverage this home as an instrument that people can see what I've done in your life and want to do in theirs. Maybe there's some other element of the life that we live. Remember, that's our definition of worship. It's not about a song that we sing, but it's the life that we live. It's our response to what God has initiated in our life to where we express His worth, not because our expressing of it gives Him His worth, but because He is worthy, we live a life to point back to Him. What is the area of brokenness in your life? What is the area that you need the repentance in your life? What's the area of simple obedience to where God has over and over and over said go or do and you've just chosen not to listen? Pray with me this morning, please. Father God, thank you for this day. Lord, thank you for who you are and what you've done. Lord, thank you for every man and woman in this room. Lord, thank you that we can come here this morning and we can listen to you and to your word, Lord, that we can sing together, that we can worship together, Lord, that we can drink a cup of coffee and shake a hand and all those things, Lord, that make us part of the body. And Father, we pray that right now you would take this idea of the ships that we've looked at, whether stewardship, hardships, fellowship, whatever the case may be, Lord, and that you would make us into the men and women that you desire us to be to reflect your son Jesus. And Lord, especially as we talk about this idea of worship, Lord, please let our worship not be something empty, just simply a song that we sing once a week. But Lord, let it be the life that we live day in and day out that points others to you. Lord, let us be people of brokenness when we stand toe-to-toe and look at the image of who you are and what you've done in our life. Lord, let us be people that are constantly in this wash, rinse, repeat cycle of repenting of our sin. Lord, that we would keep a short sin list. And Lord, ultimately, that we would be men and women that are characterized by simple obedience to you. That when you say go, we go. Lord, we love you. We praise you. Lord, and our desire is that our lives would say that louder than our words ever could. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.